Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Spencer W. McBride, who's a volume editor for the document series of the Joseph Smith Papers. Spencer earned a Ph.D. in history from Louisiana State University. His research interests include the intersections of religion and politics in early America, and his book, Pulpit and Nation, Clergyman and the Politics of Revolutionary America examines the political activism of Protestant clergymen during the American Revolution and in the early American Republic. And I think you're working on another book right now, too, aren't you, on Joseph Smith's run for president of the United States? Is that correct? that's right. Cool. How's that coming along? Um, Going really well. It's with Oxford University Press. We just got through peer review. So now I have to make a few edits, and then we will uh, get on, hopefully, with a spring 2021 release date. We will look for that, but we're not going to talk about any of that today. Instead, we are going to talk about the first vision of Joseph Smith, a podcast produced by the Joseph Smith Papers and published by The Church, which is now available on the Joseph Smith Papers website and podcast syndicators. Spencer wrote and hosted the podcast, which has proven to be wildly popular. You emailed me during the debut week and mentioned that it ranked in the top 25 of all podcasts on iTunes. We're taping this just a couple weeks later. How's it doing now? It peaked at 17, uh, which, which was a thrill. Uh, it's it since um, fluctuated in the rankings, but, but, but it was quite exciting that first week to see it, it climb the charts. Congratulations on creating a wonderful podcast that elevates the discussion regarding one of the most familiar incidents in church history. As I was listening to episode one, I thought, wow, they are presenting graduate school level information in an easily digestible format, which is a little bit different than what you do for the Joseph Smith Papers Project. You present information for academics. Spencer, tell us a little bit more about this unique production, how it got started, and what inspired you to choose such an innovative format. Well... So the core of the Joseph Smith Papers project, as you know, is for academics. It's the books we're publishing with all the documents. It's the website with all the documents. But we are historians who are also members of the church, and we gain all these insights into church history that we're anxious to share with fellow church members and the general public. And in the books and on the website where we're presenting documents, it's not the right place to do this. And so as a project, we look for opportunities to kind of take what we've done and make it accessible, make it digestible, if you will, for your average everyday church member, your church member who may be daunted by these encyclopedic type books on a shelf. They want to know more about the Joseph Smith papers. They just don't know how to get into it. And this idea of a podcast was one way of making some of the research we've done 
uh, more accessible to a wider audience. And the podcast format, I think, is particularly useful now. I'm probably preaching to the choir and telling you this, but increasingly, uh, in addition to reading or sometimes in the place of reading, uh, more and more Americans, at least, are turning to video and audio uh, for their learning. And so it, it was an opportunity for us to meet audiences where they already are. But this is not just a podcast. You're just not sitting there open mic with as a, a group of scholars and talking. There was a lot of preparation here. As I was listening to this as a uh, podcast fan, not fanatic, but I, I really enjoy podcasts, I saw, wow, this is, this is really different. For our listeners who may not have caught the podcast yet, tell us about the format you chose and why you settled on that format. Yeah, um, we chose a, a, a podcast mini-series is what we're calling it. There are six episodes and that's it. It's not going to go on. It's a self-contained publication, so to say. We kind of looked at the podcast landscape, especially nationally, be it beyond Latter-day Saint-themed podcast. Um, those that seem to draw in the largest audience of general listeners um, were these NPR-style podcasts, these documentary-style podcasts. And so we looked at shows like This American Life and even some of the BBC documentary podcasts, and we thought for, for the Joseph Smith papers, this was probably our best model. So we made it according to that in a way that we could highlight the voices of a lot of different historians and intermix them. And so if you want to see a little bit of how, how it was made, behind the scenes, what we did is we interviewed over um, about four or five months, uh, 10 different people, scholars, a general authority, mostly historians. And a lot of that just had to do with people's schedules, right? You have to find them when, when they're available. But we interviewed them on a wide range of questions. And then we took their answers and we thought, how can we present this just great group of material to the general public in a way that's very accessible and, and digestible. I mean, that's probably not the best word, but I think it's one that, that gets at the point, right? How can we take this um, really deep look at one event in church history uh, and make it as, as compelling and intriguing to church members as possible? I love that you're calling this a mini series. But as a listener at the end of the podcast, I was like, I want 10 more episodes. I think there's a very good chance there will be other mini series like it. Great. Um, but one of the debates you have is, is it a podcast that keeps going with different seasons? Is it just an ongoing continuous podcast? And I, I think we decided to try something a little different. And in a couple years, maybe I'll say, maybe that wasn't the way to go. But but at this time, I, I'm still feeling good about the decision. Um, oh, we'll see. I think it's great. You always want your listeners to leave wanting more, right? That's right. It, it's better than having them check out because they've heard too much. Exactly, where they're like, this is the same old thing. So because it's ended, I'm going to use this interview to ask the questions I had at the end of the podcast miniseries. One of them was that several times in the first episode, you mentioned the need to look at the first vision through the eyes of a historian. Why do you think it's so important? And how does this podcast fulfill that need? 
One thing I've been saying to uh, friends and, and, and acquaintances about this podcast who maybe generally don't like church history is this isn't your grandpa's church history. Now, I, I love their grandpa and I love their grandpa's church history, but we're trying to tell this in a way that maybe people who normally don't like church history can still engage with. And one of the reasons that's so important is historians do more than just tell a standard story of what happened. We dive into in as much as the sources allow us to, to understand what's going on in the lives of the men and women who made these historical events. Uh, in this case, Joseph Smith and his family. We want to understand what their world was like in 1820. And one of the things that happens from doing that, that I think is beneficial for church members, is the story of the first vision. It's still part of the story of the restoration. It's the first episode in this restoration narrative. But we begin to see what it meant for Joseph Smith in the time and in the place. And in as much as a lot of scholars of the Latter-day Saint tradition talk about how, in addition to asking which church, or sometimes in place of asking which church, a Latter-day Saints increasingly are asking why a church. This at least allows us to see how Joseph Smith and others in church history understood their relationship to church. So it becomes a story not just of the restoration of the church, but how Joseph Smith and others understood the importance of a church to begin with. I love what you just said about this generation not even understanding the question that was asked, and that's what you were addressing. Personally, I think the question of which church still matters very much, but before we can answer that question, or even sometimes ask that question, in many cases we need to address the question of why a church to begin with. And only when we can address that question can we talk about why the question of which church uh, matters. And to flip it, in the time, why a church was probably not a question that would cross the mind of the early saints. Yeah, that's right. There's been uh, cultural changes in our own time, even in my own lifetime. And I'm not that old. At least I don't think I'm that old. <laughs> but, but even in my own lifetime, there's changes in uh, American society, at least, but, but even internationally, of the role of a church within cultures and societies. So the question of which church isn't as obvious, I think, as it once was. In this carefully crafted mini-series, I noticed some things. And one is that in that mode of teaching history, you've labeled the title of each episode to correspond with a quote from the account of the first vision. <laughs> I thought that was a really great touch. And the thought behind that, and thank you, because it was intentional. We're taking the whole theme of familiar but new. We're taking a familiar story, and, and for most Latter-day Saints, it's the 1838 account in the Pearl of Great Price. And so with each episode taking a quote from a familiar story, that's our starting point. Thanks for catching. I'm glad you caught that. Um, it, it was intentional. With that in mind, let's start with the first episode, which is titled An Unusual Excitement. How unusual was the religious excitement in Rochester, New York in the 1820s? compared to that in the rest of the United States. 
So what we have going on in the United States at this time is uh, the set, what's known as the Second Great Awakening, and it is national. Um, Rachel Cope, one of our historians who was a guest on the podcast, I think really brings that out, that this is not unique to Western New York. It's happening in the Southern United States. It's happening in New England. It's happening in, uh, along the, the Atlantic seaboard. But what is happening in Western New York is special because of the high concentration of the religious revivalism, of the religious enthusiasm. It's happening nationally, but New York has an especially high concentration. And there's other areas of the country that have similar concentrations, but it sets Western New York apart from the religious enthusiasm throughout much of the country. Historian Brent Rogers mentioned that there was a great influx of people to that region at that time because of the construction of the Erie Canal. So in a way, society was disrupted by newcomers. The newcomers didn't feel quite comfortable. That was one force that contributed to this excitement. What other forces would contribute to it besides the influx of the people and in this area? As you mentioned, the migration that what uh, Whitney Cross, the historian who actually coined the phrase the burned over district, called the Yankee invasion of uh, Western New York, where where these New Englanders are, are coming in in droves. Nationally, you have these what historians call these democratic forces. Um, where American politics are becoming more democratized, meaning regular people have more to do with the political processes than ever before. But American society is also becoming more democratized. You see less reliance on educated elites, for instance, and you see your everyday men and women taking on roles in society that were once reserved for elites. Where religion's concerned, you see this in the clergy, for instance. You see where before the clergy tended to be those who had received theological training uh, at a university. Increasingly in the 1800s in the United States, you see average men uh, feeling called to the work. And without this formal theological training, they begin preaching the gospel. And, And so it's a time when, with these democratizing forces, men and women in the United States feel free to approach religion from a more individualized perspective. Um, Rather than just trusting traditional authority, they are going to search out salvation and their understanding of the Bible individually more than they ever have before. And so that leads to what we might call a religious marketplace. And I know we don't like using that word sometimes, a marketplace, um, when we talk about religion, but essentially there were people willing to change churches And so part of what you get there is if you have this great desire or this demand for preaching, um, then you get a lot more preachers and missionaries who are coming to say, well, if you're looking for a new church or a first church, listen to what we have to say. Let's unpack that a little bit. As you mentioned before in the show, we hear the voices of various scholars of early American religious history. One of those academics is Rachel Cope who teaches at BYU, she mentioned a general move away from congregationalism in the early 19th century. When I heard that, I thought, I don't think a lot of people are going to know what she means when she says congregationalism. Can you elaborate? Yeah, absolutely. And and Rachel wrote her uh, dissertation 
on conversion in Western New York at this time. And so she's got a really good handle uh, on, on what was going on. And so what she's talking about is this Yankee migration, these New Englanders flooding into Western New York, and they're bringing with them a lot of their religious background, their religious traditions. And those traditions had been in flux for decades, even centuries. So most listeners will be familiar with the story of the Puritans coming to New England. And the story goes, as it's traditionally heard, they came for religious freedom. And that's true to an extent. They came for their religious freedom, their freedom to be congregationalist. But they were not tolerant of other religious groups. That's why we have the colony now state of Rhode Island is a dissenter was expelled from the colony of, of Massachusetts Bay and goes and starts his own colony. And so over time, we see this congregationalism in transition. To be a member of a congregationalist congregation, you had to be accepted as a member to show that you were one of God's elect as a Calvinist. What's a Calvinist? So, those believing uh, in the teachings of uh, John Calvin that you were saved by grace alone and that only God's elect were saved, and that you would find signs in your life that you were one of God's elect. And then, so in the Congregationalist Church, there were strict rules for being a member. And what they found is within just a few generations, church membership was shrinking. And this was significant too, because in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and then as a state, there was an established church. So if you were not a full member of the Congregationalist Church, you had limited rights as a citizen. For instance, you could not vote if you were not a church member. Um, so what happens is they're finding in future generations, people just are not coming to become members. And so they come up with a compromise called the Halfway Covenant, which decreases the requirements for membership. And then in the 1700s, you have this uh, religious revivalism, this great awakening, and that brings these divides between what people call the old lights and the new lights. It, it divides congregationalism, and that just continues to go on. And there's debates over the role of lay people participating in the church. What ways can they participate? And so by the time you get to the 1800s, uh, the Congregationalist Standing Order, the, this, this established church that was once so dominant in Massachusetts and, and New England politics and, and society is weakened. It's a shell of its former self. And you have a large population from this Congregationalist tradition that were looking at religion in an entirely new way and were willing to do something very different than their families had done for uh, generations. That's a lot. I mean, it's a big story. Scholars have spilled a lot of ink and continue to spill a lot of ink on this story. Um, that's kind of it in a nutshell. I don't think we can talk about this topic too much because in this period of history, we see what's happening in politics overflowing into society and religious networks. So you have this congregationalism that represents privilege, just like the former government represented privilege. And then you have republicanism coming in, and it's a different kind of republicanism that's emphasizing the individual and individual participation. And in congregationalism, 
not really a lot that the individual can do except for just show up to church on Sunday. That's right. But, oh, go ahead. Well, and so Christopher Jones, I think, adds some really good insight in the podcast of why Methodism became so uh, attractive to so many of these New Englanders who had relocated to New York. Because here you have a theology that privileges the individual and lets the individual be the primary agent in his or her um, quest for salvation, how they come to Christ. Uh, You don't come to Christ through the learned elites. You come to Christ by coming to Christ. Uh, That's a simplified version, but but essentially uh, what what Christopher says uh, in that podcast is one of the reasons so many New Englanders, including the Smiths, um, at least some of the Smiths are attracted to Methodism is because of this appeal of this democratized religion for a more democratized uh, society. So in this environment comes Joseph Smith, and he's taken away the one point of stability. I guess that was one aha moment I had as I was listening to the first vision. You have these people who are saying, okay, we're going to experiment with religion in a different way, but don't mess with our Bible. And Joseph says, well, I'm going to mess with that as well. Yeah, and, and I think uh, where the first vision is concerned is still this very personal experience for him. And so James 1.5, um, before Joseph Smith says anything in an official manner as an ecclesiastical leader, James 1.5 was for him this, this groundbreaking moment. It, it was this hinge point, if you will. And Steve Harper in the podcast explains, I think in a really helpful way, that that verse helped Joseph know how to read the Bible. Yes, the Bible has answers to questions, but it also is a story of how people in the past received answers to their questions. And so rather than simply looking at the Bible as a collection of spiritual answers, which it was, uh, as Steve explains in that moment, Joseph begins to understand the Bible also as a testament that if you need wisdom, ask God. So he's reading it in this more democratized uh, culture. And he reads James 1 and 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God as um, further approval to go directly to God for answers. You mentioned Joseph reading James 1 5. I feel like as a lifelong member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I feel some ownership over that verse. Part of that probably is because from a young age, I visualized Joseph reading James 1.5 with a giant Bible on his lap because we have some really prominent artwork depicting that. Do we know if Joseph just stumbled across that verse or if that was something that was in the air and commonly preached at these camp meetings or or Methodist church meetings. Yeah, I like that question. I think about that too, because in some of the accounts, it's implied that he was, well, he says, I was one day reading the Bible and came across James 1.5. But we also have surviving evidence that some of the religious meetings that Joseph might have attended it was a preacher who quoted James 1.5, and that's what got Joseph Smith reading it. So maybe what Joseph meant was I was one day reading, and I was reading in James 1.5 because that's where the preacher suggested that I read. 
that part isn't entirely clear, but it does seem that he was directed to that scripture by a preacher of another denomination uh, rather than just stumbling across it in the Bible one day as a big aha moment. It was a big aha moment, but it seems that he was directed there rather than just flipping through the pages of, of the Bible. Not that it matters. At all. I just, it's sometimes people bring that up and I'm like, well, you know, usually we don't function in a vacuum where spiritual matters are concerned. These years of pondering and attending meetings were not a negative. They were helpful. They were stirring the pot of inspiration and uh, helping Joseph become receptive to the spirit. And I, I think I can be a little sympathetic to the telling of stories because I think of books that have been very influential to me as a scholar. And I can remember this one book I read and how important the aha moment that came as I read a scholar's work. And I don't always tell or think about who recommended the book to me in the first place. right? And I know that's not a perfect parallel, but I think the idea of how we synthesize our memories um, comes into play here. I remember the book and that in reading it, I had this aha moment. Um, I don't always remember who recommended the book or I don't tell that part of the story in talking about the aha moment. I'm sure we could all look into some aspect of our life where we do something similar in the way we synthesize our past memories. The second episode introduces what I would consider revisionist history. If only because you're reconstructing the prevailing narrative regarding the reason for Joseph's prayer, which we know from the account in The Pearl of Great Price. But before we talk about the vision, let's review how we know about this vision. So we have four first-person accounts that Joseph gave during his life. Sometimes people count it as five. And if you're wondering, the reason is, in 1835, Joseph spoke in, a, in Kirtland with a visitor named Matthias, and he told the story just in casual conversation. Uh, it was his scribe, Warren Parrish, who recorded it in Joseph's journal, and that's what we consider our 1835 account. The reason sometimes people count it twice is because two weeks later, Warren Parrish took that same account and copied it into a letter and in doing so, you know, made small edits. So sometimes people say there's five accounts, but two of them are really records of the same account. So there's four that Joseph gave uh, that were recorded. And then we have approximately five, what we call secondhand accounts. These are people who Joseph told about the first vision. And these individuals then relate what Joseph told them in their own accounts. So, so we're dealing with nine uh, historical sources. When there are inconsistencies as a historian, how do you choose which version to favor? Yeah, and that's that's a really good question and and an important one when we talk about viewing this event through the eyes of historians, right? How do historians work? The answer, I think, lies in understanding the sources that we're using. For instance, the 1838 account, the account most Latter-day Saints know, was an official account. It was published in an official church history. So that's one of the reasons it's the most complete, uh, in many ways, most formal sounding account of the first vision. 1842, you get another one that sounds, that's very official and formal sounding because Joseph Smith was responding to a request from a newspaper man, John Wentworth. 
1832, he's writing his personal history. And the 1832 account, which is beautiful, is ultimately a draft that was never published. That's what it amounts to. Joseph Smith never published that 1832 history. It's a draft of him writing his personal history. And so understanding the reason for the creation of the document, the circumstances of the document help us understand why the document reads the way that it does. Again, 1835, a conversation. And so we lean heavily, I think, for a long time in our church's history on 1838 and sometimes from 1842, in part because those were finished, published, official histories of the church. So when we draw from 1832 and 1835, we need to do it not just as these are other accounts, but if we understand the circumstances in which these accounts were given, um, that can help us know, you know, where do we lean if there's discrepancies. So for instance, in the 1832 account, Joseph says, and I saw the Lord. He doesn't talk about two divine beings appearing to him. Some have criticized uh, that account, although the way Joseph phrased it doesn't preclude other beings. But how does knowing that, that that account is a draft of a history that was never finished, never published, shape our understanding um, of what's in that document? And, and so this is what we as historians do. As we decide what we present and how we present it, we need to consider not just what the words in the accounts say, but how those accounts were created and why they were created. And so that helps us know what points we kind of emphasize. And, and so in, in this case, we draw on 1832 and 1835 a lot. They're lesser known accounts, but they have um, such rich details that I, for one, wish we had in all the accounts. As I was listening to you, I thought maybe it's a human tendency, maybe it's just a lay person tendency, but as we're looking at these different accounts, we tend to want to see an amalgamation. Okay, we put this part together and this part together, and we get this unified whole. Going back to what you said in the first episode, you want to show us the first vision through the eyes of the historian. You're not necessarily trying to say this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, are you? No, and, and, and I think you're right. It, it's not just telling a narrative story point by point. It's allowed to be a little messy. In fact, we like our history to be a little messier because that means it's real. As humans, I think we want our, our histories to fit in a nice box. You can put a bow on it. But what I hope people understand through this and the work of other historians is that ambiguity, uncertainty, the unknown in our history is not something to shy away from. Just because history is messy doesn't mean we need to be afraid of it. And if we approach it carefully and responsibly and thoughtfully, um, there's great dividends to be paid by diving into messy history. Going back to that question where I asked you which versions you privilege when you're telling the stories, I love this quote from the podcast. She said, what is happening in the present influences the way we remember the past. Can you elaborate on that for yeah, us? Yeah, absolutely. I think when we talk about memory and even memory of events in our own life, 
we're not talking about recall, at least in the podcast. So we do in episode five, we talk a lot about Joseph remembering the first vision as he told it. And some have thought, do I recall these details? And, and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how we remember things. And when you tell a story to somebody, who you're telling it to helps frame how you tell it. So for instance, Joseph Smith writing his personal history in 1832, that account is very much a personal conversion narrative. This is Joseph Smith receiving an answer from God about his standing in God's eyes. Um, when he's writing in 1838 for a formal official church history, he writes it differently. The, the details are, are generally, they, they match up, but his points of emphasis are different. And in, in 1838, 1839, Joseph is going through one of the hardest times of his life with the Missouri persecutions. And that comes out in the way he phrases things. I mean, you have a very defiant Joseph Smith in the 1838 account saying, I had seen a vision. I knew it. I knew that God knew it and I could not deny it, nor dared I do it. I mean, this is a guy who is, feels hurt and attacked and he's telling it like it is. And there's a defiant tone in parts of that account. 1842, and, and again, for those who, who want this in greater detail, we talk about this in the podcast at length, but one of the highlights for me, at least listening to these scholars speak, is how we see in 1842, the substance of the, the account is essentially the same, but you don't have the same defiance because Joseph Smith's in Nauvoo. Things are generally going a lot better than they were in 1838 and 1839. And John Wentworth is coming to him saying, will you tell us your history? The tone that Joseph uses is different because the circumstances are different. So this is all just to say that when we say that what's going on in the present influences the way we remember the past. It's just that, that we tell our stories, we synthesize our own past uh, in the present based on who we're speaking to and what's going on in our lives. One of the things that really struck me as a historian making this podcast is I spent more time in the different accounts of the first vision than I ever had before. I was familiar with them, but I dove in deep. And as I talked with these other historians about it, one thing became really clear is that Joseph's understanding of the vision's significance grew with time. 1832, he still understands it primarily as a, his personal conversion. This was a personal experience. 1835, when Matthias is visiting him, the conversation goes, let me tell you how the Book of Mormon came forth. And he starts with the first vision. We see Joseph beginning to connect the dots. He sees the first vision as a key step in the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. By 1838, 1839, he, he's beginning to understand that this first vision was not, it was a personal conversion moment, but it was also a key um, moment in the restoration of the gospel. We see Joseph's understanding of his earlier spiritual experiences grow. He gets the role that that experience played better as life goes on. And I think most of us can look at our own lives and we can see the same thing. Maybe we don't have these dramatic visions, but we see key moments in our spiritual development that with time and experience, 
we begin to see the significance of those moments more than we did in the moment. We begin to see how those moments shaped the rest of our life and not just uh, served a function in the moment, if that makes sense. I think for me, it was a very helpful realization to say, I see Joseph Smith's development not only as a prophet, but in his own discipleship. In sharing these various remembrances of the first vision, you mentioned that a young 12-year-old Joseph was caught up in the religious excitement of the period. This struck me as revisionist history, because from the 1838 version, we get the idea of 14, 14, 14. Why do you use the age of 12? Yeah, good question. And you're not the first to ask me this, so it's striking a chord with a lot of people. And for me, it's really uh, a useful point of the history. So in the 1832 account, uh, Joseph writes at the very beginning, at about the age of 12 years, my mind became seriously impressed with regard to the all-important concerns for the welfare of my immortal soul. It's in that earlier account he identifies the start of his seeking at 12. 14 significant because that's when he goes into the grove of trees and seeks the answer and receives the answer he seeks. But we see that this, this period of questioning, of wondering, begins at age 12, shortly after his family uh, moves to Western New York. It's significant for a lot of reasons, but I think for Latter-day Saints listening today, why I think that really matters is we see how long Joseph sought answers to the pressing questions of his soul. Because even though it's not stated directly, sometimes you can read the first vision account in the Pearl of Great Price. And in terms of space on the page, Joseph has the question and within verses has his answer. And it seems very quick. And we wonder, why isn't it that quick for me? And I think Rachel Cope expressed this beautifully in the podcast, that we compare ourselves sometimes to these folks in the scriptures. If we can see that, in fact, for many of them, these were long, drawn-out processes, we can take heart, we can take, take courage in knowing that sometimes the pressing questions of our souls are not answered right away, but answers do eventually come. And one thing that Rachel does to kind of uh, elaborate on this is she brings up Joseph's mother, Lucy Mack Smith. So if we thought Joseph asked for years before he got his answers, Lucy Mack Smith searched for decades, wanting to know where God's church was. And, and so one of the reasons we emphasize the seeking started at 12, I think, is not only is it enlightening our minds of the full history of the first vision, but I think there's a, a, a spiritual dimension that a lot of Latter-day Saints can really benefit from knowing that even for Joseph Smith, often the answers took time to come. It also de-emphasizes a specific year or date in the accounts. There's a lot of hullabaloo about the dating of the first vision and whether they were revivals during 1820 or 1824 in the area or whatever. So you're saying he's seeking at age 12. Was this really a start and stop process or something that was ongoing? I'm wondering, does Joseph actually use the words revival or camp meetings in his various accounts? Nowhere in his accounts does he say, I attended a revival or I attended a camp meeting. He says, 
speaking of the different religionists in his community, I attended their meetings as often as occasion would permit. Now, we know of a revival in, I think it's 1817 or 1818, about that time the Smiths move to New York. And, and the revivals came in waves. Sometimes when we talk about this religious enthusiasm, I think it's easier for us to think of con a constant state of revival meetings. When really these came in waves, when they thought enthusiasm was dropping and we needed to revive it. But these church groups were meeting regularly throughout that time, as churches do. So we don't know exactly what Joseph meant by I attended their meetings as often as occasion would permit. We suspect, yes, there were some revivals and camp meetings in there, but it could also have been just congregational worship services. He could have been an, attending a Methodist Sunday school meeting. He leaves it pretty general that he's attending their meetings, and he's doing it over uh, years, and it's not all focused on 1820. Thank you. We've mentioned Steve Harper a couple times in this podcast already. You have to mention Steve Harper when you talk about the first vision That's because right. he's done so much scholarly research on the period and the event and Joseph Smith. He's uh, formerly worked on the book Saints and he worked in the church history department as a documentary editor. He's now at BYU as the editor of BYU Studies Quarterly, and he's a teacher there. He mentions that Joseph, in this 1832 vision, and you mentioned this as well, was concerned about his sins when he goes to pray in the grove. Why would this be such a big concern for a young man, age 12 to 14? What types of things would the itinerant preachers or the Methodist churches that he was attending... What would they be saying to him to get him so worked up about his sins? Yeah, so a lot of the preaching um, that's going on, especially from the evangelical denominations, is focused on salvation and finding your salvation. And a lot of it's done through what we might consider uh, somewhat dramatic or, or exhortation, right? Search your heart, search your soul, have an awareness of your sins, know that you all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's this idea that once you recognize that you are a sinner, then you recognize the need for a savior. So it's standard Christian theology, but, but it's really especially pronounced amongst a lot of these preachers that in order to be saved, you need to recognize the need to be saved. And so there's lots of exhortation of be aware of your shortcomings and then come to Jesus and be saved. Someone such as Joseph Smith at that young age would, of course, hear this, and he'd become very aware, as most attendees would, of their shortcomings, of their sins, of their of their failings. And for someone like Joseph, who's then wondering, well, how do I get the corresponding salvation? Right, I got the first part down. I'm aware of where I fall short. The question then became, how do I find the corresponding salvation? And I think a lot of this has to do with the, the meetings that Joseph was attending. But I suspect that even if Joseph wasn't attending a lot of church meetings, I think adolescence is a time period for many where they become much more aware of their self. They're much more aware of how they fit into society. Uh, they're much more aware of their strengths, of their weaknesses. So I imagine that's going on at the same time. Joseph is hitting adolescence at the same time he's hearing this preaching. So yeah, he knows he's fallen short, 
He knows he's sinned. The then pressing question of his soul becomes, where do I stand before God and how can I be saved? You mentioned uh, a little bit some of the things that were talked about in these church meetings. Christopher Jones, who's also formerly of the Joseph Smith Papers and now teaches at BYU, mentions that often those converted at camp meetings would faint, then awaken saying they had had visions of Jesus Christ who had forgiven their sins, something Joseph Smith was very interested in. And also they would be told to join a specific church. So visions of deity, which we call theophanies, were in the Pentecostal air that Joseph breathed. Do you know if these theophanies were shared beyond the camp meetings? Did people talk about these in newspapers? Did they talk about them when they went to the hardware store? Do we know that? Yeah, so... um and this is a this is a, a really important point as we talk about the religious culture, right? People were encouraged in these camp meetings to seek answers, and some would have it in the camp meeting. Others would then go out into the woods in private and pray to receive answers. And a lot of them had these dramatic visions. Um, one of the more well-known of that time was that of Benjamin Abbott. You also have uh, a host of others. And, and their stories usually had to do with Either sometimes they fainted or sometimes they had this prayer and they had this moment where they saw God or they saw Jesus or they saw both. Those stories were often repeated at uh, church meetings, almost like Latter-day Saints would think today as sharing your testimony. These people would profess that they believe and this is how I or why I believe. They were often reprinted in Christian newspapers. I know Benjamin Abbott's account, which happened in 1792, he writes it down. In 1813, that becomes a commonly reprinted account in Christian newspapers throughout the United States. So there is this kind of culture of these dramatic answers to prayers are possible. And Joseph is hearing these almost certainly. Uh, He knows about these and maybe seeks his own similar conversion experience. Now, one of the points that Christopher and, and Stephen Harper both point out in the podcast is when Joseph has this vision, has this experience, the way he describes it is different in a key way. Whereas most of these these other Americans who are experiencing these visions of God at this time, they say something like, my mind seemed to rise and I saw God sitting upon his throne, or I saw by faith, or they invoke the apostle Paul and say, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. But Joseph doesn't couch his language in any of those terms. What he describes as his first vision in many ways is Joseph describing a visitation. Joseph is not using that cautious language to say how he saw God the Father and Jesus Christ. He's a young boy. He's not schooled in this language of how to tell about your vision, but he's very much describing a visitation more so than a vision. Uh, And I think that's what angers a lot of people when they hear his account early on. Uh, Stephen Harper suggests that, that there's this radical theology of Joseph Smith's first vision account that he doesn't even see why it's radical. But those who he's telling it to, uh, they see it because he's talking about it as a real thing that happened. I think one thing Steve Harper brings up is that Joseph 
didn't quite realize the nuances, the differences in how he was telling the account to how others were. And that the reason he delayed sharing his account, perhaps, was because he may have felt it was a common Methodist conversion experience. Do we have any evidence in the historical record that this could be the case? Yes, so we don't know everyone he told the account to and when he told them, right, the 1838 account Latter-day Saints know so well, he comes and tells his mother, I've learned for myself that Presbyterianism isn't true. Did he then go on and say, and this is how I know? We don't know. He could have. He could have told her later. Um, We know he told the Methodist minister. At the end of the 1832 account, he writes, I could rejoice with great joy for the Lord was with me, but could find none that would believe the heavenly vision. We know he's telling somebody. We don't know how many. But when he finally writes down his vision in 1832, and this is the moment where Joseph really becomes earnest about keeping personal records, he tells the story in a format that matches the way a lot of people told their conversion stories in that time and place. The 1832 account reads like a Methodist conversion narrative. Now, was Joseph reading these conversion narratives in the new Christian newspapers? Maybe, maybe not. I, I would guess probably not. But was he hearing them at camp meetings? Almost certainly. Our ability as humans to kind of intuit how we tell our stories um, from the, what's going on around us is, is happening then too. Think of our own Latter-day Saint testimony meetings. Does anyone really teach you to start a testimony with, I would like to bear my testimony? Or what are the component parts of a testimony? Most people can sit in enough testimony meetings that they say, this is how you share a testimony. I suspect that maybe that was going on with Joseph Smith when he sits down in 1832 to finally write how he became converted, how he received forgiveness for his sins. How do you tell a conversion narrative? Well, you tell it in the same kind of way that everyone else you've ever heard tell their narrative tells it. So I think that's part of why 1832 reads that way. Um, It's Joseph just intuiting, this is how you tell of conversion. That's wonderful. In revising how we look at the first vision, you emphasize that let's get away from the question from 1838, what church to join, and go back to the question of 1832, the pressing question of why Joseph went to knelt in prayer was, can I have a remission of my sins? I love what Brent Rogers said about this. The importance is that I can really identify with that question. I'm human. I have sins, and I want to know my standing before God. What did Joseph learn from his prayer? I think the 1832 account, it's most pronounced. He realized that he was not cast off because of his sins, that he was not only forgiven, but that he was in good standing with God. That 1832 account, he writes, I could rejoice with great joy. And, and in 1835, he says that this vision filled him with, quote, joy unspeakable. Joseph never really felt comfortable expressing himself uh, in the written word. But I think there's a lot of emotion in those short lines, uh, filled with great joy, with joy unspeakable. 
what relief he must have felt as he wondered for years, am I cast off because of my sins? And now he knows that he wasn't. Now he knows that he is in good standing uh, before, before God. And so that, that sense of joy, I think, suggests also a sense of relief that he had this answer, that he, he got the answer to the pressing question of his, his soul and, and got a little more information because the only reason he was asking which of all the churches is true, which again is an important question, but seeing it as what was the bigger question before, how can I be forgiven of my sins or what's my standing before God? We see that the reason he's asking that question is because he wants salvation. And he then becomes willing to wait for the true church to be revealed to him at a later date, but only after he knows that he's in a good place um, with his Father in heaven. If there is one new takeaway you would love listeners to get from your mini-series, your show, what would it be? I think it's probably expressed best in the closing minutes of episode six, where we have uh, Elder LeGrand Curtis Jr. of the 70 and uh, Stephen Harper talking about what we learn about the nature of God. And this is where more I am speaking both as a historian and a member of the church. It really spoke to me when they said what we learn about the nature of God. Yeah, we can talk about he's embodied and Jesus Christ and and Heavenly Father are separate and embodied. uh, And that matters. But what matters more than anything is that God is responsive. Because I think as humans, humans seeking a bigger meaning for our life and, and seeking it through religion, to know that God is compassionate and to know that he will respond to us in times of crisis. Um, there's something comforting there. And I think you can know that without the full history of the first vision. But I think one of the things that really comes across as we tell this story and we tell it with the emphasis on Joseph's most pressing question, we understand that what Joseph learned about the nature of God, we also can learn about the nature of God. And, and he expresses it even in his 1838 account, which is so focused on the question of which church is true before he transitions from the story of the first vision to the coming forth of the book of Mormon. He says, I had learned for myself that the testimony of James was true. So even in his account, that's most focused on the church, the personal lesson he learned about the nature of God comes through. And so that's something that really has stuck with me as the creator of this podcast and something that I really hope resonates with the Latter-day Saints who listen, that more than anything, we learn about God's compassion and the way Stephen Harper puts it, that the God who revealed himself to Joseph Smith in the grove is responsive to teenagers in times of crisis. I love that message. Thanks again for your time, for producing the podcast. When I first listened to this, my first response after I finished episode six was to start it again. So I listened to it twice in a row. So two of those downloads are me. Well, excellent. (laughs) Excellent. So for listeners who haven't listened to the podcast, I'll put a link in the show notes. For those who have listened to it, I hope our conversation enlightens some of the questions you may have had. And hopefully we'll talk to you again, Spencer. It'd be great. 
Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.